0: What does it mean to be religious but not spiritual? This talk is for the one who feels that at church they go through the motions each week, but is unmoved in their heart. It's the one who has served in some ministry or mission, but has now feels burned out. We have lots of people from NGOs and missionaries who feel burnt out. This is the one who keeps acquiring more and more knowledge about God, but feels no further along to knowing God this is the one who goes from spiritual practice to spiritual practice from one translation to the next denomination to denomination looking for the real presence of god is for the person who's done all the right things for god but feels stuck or that god has not measured up and not just this is not just for individuals it's also for the church that seems to that lacks a prophetic voice a church that lacks power It's religious, but not spiritual. It has the form of godliness, but not the power. That can happen individually, it can happen corporately, can happen as the body of God's people. And so this is what I'm referring to as religious, but not spiritual. Now, let me define that. You may, um, so you may know the common phrase, spiritual, but not religious. That's actually not really used very often anymore. But you know what spiritual but not religious means. It usually means that they are sensitive to spiritual things, but they are often against organized religion, often more in favor of individualized expression of spirituality or connectedness. Uh, Religious but not spiritual is not its opposite. It's not the opposite. To be religious but not spiritual does not mean that you favor organized religion over against spiritual connectedness. In fact, I'll argue later that these are two branches from the same trunk. If I keep singing or find just the right music, my heart will now feel the love and gratitude I should feel for God. If I pray long enough or if I pray with the right technique, God will become personal. These religious forms to guarantee an internal transformation. This is religious, but not spiritual. I could give you a long list of types of ways that we do this. So I'm not going to argue that religious form is bad. I'm not against religious forms. Rather, I'm wanting to examine our relationship to these forms and to God. But I'm going to approach this topic a bit differently than I usually approach. I usually approach it very kind of systematically. How do we think culturally or how do we often think of these things? And then how might we think biblically? This time I want to examine the story of King Saul. So this isn't Saul of Tarsus, which is the New Testament figure, most well known as the Apostle Paul, who wrote 13 letters in the New Testament. This is about Saul, the son of Kish in from first Samuel. Um, Now the reason I want to do this is because I think that we can gain insight by looking at someone's personal life, like a case study. Um, Hey welcome Guyang and Greg. (laughs) I saw you come in. Uh, I also want to do this because the scriptures actually want us to think about this topic particularly. Welcome back, Minsu. Uh, The scriptures want us to see Saul as an example of being religious, but not spiritual, of having the forms, but not the power. So this story is told to us intentionally that we might learn what it means to be religious, but not spiritual and how we should avoid that. Um, It's not (coughs) just indicative of Saul as an individual, but really indicative of Israel what Israel was looking for in Saul and what we often look for in leadership, what we often look for in ourselves in relationship to God. So Saul is one person's story, but indicative of this temptation to look to the form and not to God himself. And so I'm going to highlight his story uh, and kind of make some highlights so that we, and then I'm going to have four lessons for us to think about what does it mean to be religious, but not spiritual. And then how we might move toward a relation, a real relationship with God that has power. Um, Interrupt me anytime you want. Now, the best way for me to do this is to read the story of Saul. I really believe that there's power in reading the actual scriptures, but there's 24 chapters. I think that's probably too long for you. Too. Okay. It's way too long. Uh, but we can be thankful that the person who constructed the story, constructed it in a, in a very intentional and simple way, there's Saul's story is told against three other figures. They act as foils.
1: Foils in
0: literature is the, is the person who is usually the opposite that juxtaposes the other person, the main character. And, uh, and they show that highlight of difference. Now I believe the story, the Bible, to be historically accurate and true, but is also literarily represented um, of this historical event. Yeah. Now the three foils is the prophet of God Samuel, Saul's son, Jonathan, and can I think someone needs to be muted? And then also, uh, and then the um, king after him, David, right? Uh, So I'm going to look at his story, the lessons, and then conclude. Okay, Samuel, Jonathan, and David all represent people that look faithfully to God. They're not perfect people, but they look faithfully to God in light of Saul not looking to God. So we learn a lot about what Saul is not being through David, Jonathan, and Samuel. These three men, they listen to God's voice and his leading, um, where Samuel, where Saul does not. Uh, And also, what you see is these three figures are really contending for Israel, contending for God's people to be faithful, to follow God's leading in battle or in mercy or in calling on his name rather than calling for a king. now, before I get into his story directly, I'm just going to give you a little for the backdrop of where Samuel, the story Samuel um, comes in, the history of Samuel, right before it is the book of Judges, uh, historically, and how and literarily. Um, so the judges were the leaders, they were political, militaristic, legal, religious leaders, Uh And you hear about them through the book of Judges. Now, Judges were these leaders that were often immoral and inconsistent, but being called by God, nevertheless, to keep his people going. They would be empowered by God's spirit. They would fight off the the occupiers or fighters um, or military people. And but as soon as they gained victory, they would forget God and go right back to their immoral practices. And so judges just gets worse and worse and worse and worse. And these are dark days. No one is looking to God, no one is hearing from God. Even the priests uh, and the prophets are silent. This is where Samuel begins, the story of 1st um, and 2nd Samuel. And in the midst of it, you have a barren woman, Hannah. Who prays to God that she might receive a son from him, not just so that she might have a baby, but she really, you can see in 1 Samuel 2, where she is looking for God to bring a deliverer. She's wanting God to act. She's a barren woman looking for the fruit of God to be at work in her, but also in God's people. And God answers that prayer. And Samuel is born. And in fact, um, in the Hebrew, uh, she says that she names her son Samuel because Saul. Saul is the actual Hebrew word that means God hears. So it says Samuel, I name him Samuel because God hears. It's the word Saul, and so there's a con- there's already a play. There's already this irony at work between the two antagonisms between Saul or Samuel who hears from God. What does it mean to hear from God? <clears throat> And so this becomes an important theme throughout. What does it mean to hear from God and to see God at work in God's people and through his individual people, leaders? So God has proven faithful to Israel. Nevertheless, um, by bringing Samuel, who's a faithful judge, he listens to their cases. Everyone sees that he has power. He goes from town to town, province to province, uh, listening to the people's cases and giving them judgment based on God's word. Nevertheless, Israel says, but we want to be like the other nations. We're tired of being a peculiar people. We're tired of being different. And so we just want to be like the other nations. And so we want a king. So really this is a rejection of what God has given them. But God gives them what they ask for. Have you ever considered that God might give us something that we ask for even when it's not in our best interest, this is what has happened here. And so God doesn't just give them a king. He gives them a king like the other nations. Saul is tall. He's handsome. He's from a wealthy family with pedigree. Saul, son of Kish. You know, that, has, that name had importance. <clears throat> However, when we first see Saul, he's chasing donkeys with his servant, all through the area, and he can't find donkeys, okay, so he's a bad shepherd, so this is already foreboding, okay, he's tall, he's handsome, he's wealthy, but he can't even find sheep, or donkeys, Uh, and so on his way, his servant tells him, well, there's a man of God named Samuel, and we can give him some money, and maybe he can tell us where the donkeys are, and so Saul approaches the city, where Samuel is, supposedly, and as soon as Saul finds Samuel, Samuel says, you're the one I need. Come here. You're invited to a meal. God had told him that this man is going to come. And this is the man that I choose. And He sees this towering figure and he says, you're invited to a meal. And Saul comes to this meal and he is the guest of honor. He's looking for donkeys. He can't find them. And he finds out that actually there's a huge banquet in his honor. Uh, and Samuel pulls him to the side and said, God has chosen you to be king. Which would have been a really <clears throat> awe-inspiring kind of thing. But Samuel, not only having a, a banquet set for him and s- special portion of food that he already knew about, and that he was a seer, that he knew God's purposes, but he wanted to give assurances to Saul that God, in fact, had called him. And there would be three... Instances, three signs. There would be the sign that um, the donkeys were found. There would be, uh, no, actually, uh, yeah, the father's servant would tell him that the donkeys had been found, that a traveling group with food, with this um, consecrated bread, would give him bread to eat, uh, two loaves of bread, (coughs) and that Saul himself would find himself in the company of prophets prophesying. All three happened. So there was this private and this public confirmation that God is at work and God choosing Saul. Um, When Saul returns, his uncle's like, you met Samuel? You met him? What did he say? What what did he have to say? He said, well, he told me that the donkeys were found. (laughs) He didn't tell him that he was going to be king. Now, the Bible wants us to ask What is going on inside Saul? In fact, we often don't know. Saul is quite a a surfacey figure, superficial, tall, handsome, wealthy, but not much else, you know, a complicated, tortured figure. But And so we don't really know. Is he reflecting, as Mary did, when she found this great news that she was going to bear the Messiah? And she was quiet. She held these things to herself. Saul is quiet. But we find out that he's probably quiet because he's hoping this isn't the case. Because Samuel then holds a public event before all of Israel, and they cast lots. And we see that God is providentially behind casting of the lots. The first lots go to the family, the tribe of Benjamin. Cast lots again. It goes to the family of Kish. They cast lots the third time it goes to Saul. Wow, what a confirmation that God is behind you. He's orchestrating. But where is Saul? You know the story.
2: He's hiding
0: in the luggage, right? But when he stands up, people see how tall and handsome he is. They kind of forget that he was hiding in the luggage. And they feel that he will inspire them to lead them into battle. Um, and so Saul recognizes it, and then God leads them into battle, and Saul realizes that God had led them to victory. Samuel then gives a speech transitioning the political leadership of him and his family to Saul. And he tells Israel that if they obey the voice of God, the king and the people will do well. Then the story of Saul's leadership begins. But it starts badly. Saul's son, Jonathan, attacks a group of Philistines, a nation that's continually fighting against Israel. However, when the Philistines counterattack, the Israelites realize that the Philistines are far more organized, much more technologically advanced. And so the Israelites scatter. They hide behind the rocks. They go in caves. They even jump into the cisterns. They don't want to be found. And so Saul is nervous. Samuel said, wait for me for seven days, and I'm going to show up on the seventh day and uh, make a sacrifice, and then we'll go into battle. Well, Saul is getting very nervous. It's day one, day two, day three. He's getting anxious. Samuel's not showing up. It's on the seventh day. The people seem to be anxious. He's anxious. And he says, let's just go ahead and start doing the sacrifice. So he starts doing the sacrifice, and then Samuel shows up in the afternoon. And it's like, what are you doing? What are you doing? Um, And so Saul tells him that the people were scattering, the Philistines were gathering, and Samuel wasn't there yet. What else could he do? Why did you have to be last minute? I had to do something. But Samuel condemns the action and says that because Saul did not obey God's commands, his kingdom would be taken from him, which seems kind of harsh. Yet the battles against the Philistines continue. They separated to attack Israel from all sides. But in spite of their technological advancements and trained troops, Jonathan decides to go out and fight them. He feels that God will give them their hands, give them into their hands because of what the Lord would do. Saul, meanwhile, is sitting under a pomegranate tree, hanging out with his closest buddies, the high priests. And the priests and they're just waiting. Um, and if you know the story, the priests are not the good kind. They're of the old establishment. The swamp hadn't been drained. <laughs> That's just a joke. <clears throat> but it's just the bad priests are there. Okay. And um, <clears throat> and so Jonathan goes out and in spite of the odds, looks to and God to deliver him in Israel. And wonderfully, God does. The Philistines are shocked and scared. And that's when Saul sees an opportunity to attack. So what does he do? He's like, we better get our sacrifice going. So he gets another sacrifice going. But then he realizes there's just not enough time. The attack is already going. And so he's like, just stop and let's just go. And priests were not just priests. They also fought, okay? And so they all went and in, into the battle and they left the sacrifice half done. So they make... Um, <clears throat> Uh, so they make their attack, and Saul says, you know, by the way, nobody is supposed to eat. We're going to make an oath to fast. Okay, we're going to, um, we're going to fast until we have victory. And if anyone disobeys this oath, they'll be cursed and killed. Now, Jonathan was unaware that this was happening because he was out fighting. And he sees some honey on the ground, scoops it up and eats. And the, the servant with him says, you know that you're not supposed to do that. There was an oath that your father had. He's like, oh, my father's an idiot. Like if the soldiers had eaten, they would have even more victory. It's not that he thought that they wouldn't have victory, but they're not having as much victory as they would have if they were. um, It was a foolish and rash thing to do. And so as soon as the Israelite troops have victory over the Philistines, they're starving. They've been fighting. They're tired and they're so hungry that they go out and they kill the animals and start eating it with the lifeblood still in it, just eating the raw flesh. They're starving. And, of course, this is against God's commands to eat. And so the priest tells Saul that the people are sinning, so he sets up an altar. This is one of many Saul sets up. So Saul loves setting up altars to God um, because they want him. They, he says, well, they can bring that meat and offer it on the altar so that they can offer it to God and eat it cooked. And then they decide to go out to battle again. And Saul wants to know where God's leading, but he can't, but God doesn't speak. So he asks the priest, why God not speaking to me? He says, well, someone has broken the oath that you created. And he found out it was Jonathan. He's like, well, I have to now kill my son. And the Israelites is like, he's our best warrior. <laughs> and um, he's our best warrior. He's fighting on God's behalf. He's hearing from God. Don't kill him. And so Saul decides to spare him israelite interceded and saved the son jonathan and then in the most telling part of the story god through samuel commands saul to exterminate the amalekites so this is kind of like the second part so samuel's the first part of the story this is the second part of the story jonathan before i get to david and so saul's supposed to exterminate the amalekites now The reason that he's supposed to go out and kill the Amalekites is because he's supposed to fulfill a promise that God made. So Israel, they're very vulnerable, leaving Egypt, going to the wilderness. And the Amalekites see that there's a vulnerable people without weapons and they want to attack. And so God says, I curse them. Well, now God is bringing about his curse. He's fulfilling his curse on the Amalekites and he wants Saul to fulfill his Curse his wrath against the Amalekites, and so he says to Saul, "Kill all the men, women, children, and animals." Now, we might have a problem with this; <laughs> it's a very hard kind of saying. Well, Saul also had a problem with this. Do you know why Saul had a problem with this? No, because he wants
3: to keep, keep the animals.
0: That's right. He's not concerned about the women. He's not concerned about the children. He's concerned about the good beef that he might lose. Okay. Interesting. Um, and so he keeps the best animals and keeps their king, King Agag, alive. I guess that's how you say it. <clears throat> what a potential political ally. God reveals to Samuel what Saul had done. I'm going to now read you this section so you can kind of hear it for yourself. And Samuel rose early to meet Saul in the morning and was told Samuel, Saul came to Carmel and behold, he set up a monument for himself and turned and passed on and went down to Gilgal. And Samuel came to Saul and Saul said to him, blessed be you to the Lord. I have performed the commandment of the Lord. And Samuel said, what then is this bleating of sheep in my ears and the lowing of the oxen that I hear? Saul said, They've brought them from the Amalekites for the people spared the best of the sheep and of the oxen to sacrifice to the Lord your God and the rest we have devoted to destruction. Then Samuel said to Saul, stop, I will tell you what the Lord said to me this night. And he said to him, or Saul said to Samuel, speak. And Samuel said, though you are little in your own eyes, are you not the head of the tribes of Israel? The Lord anointed you king over Israel, and the Lord sent you on a mission and said, Go, devote yourself to destruction. Uh, Devote to destruction the sinners, the Amalekites, and fight against them until they are consumed. Why then did you not obey the voice of the Lord? Why did you pounce on the spoil and do what is evil in the sight of the Lord? And Saul said to Samuel, I have obeyed the voice of the Lord. I have gone on the mission on which the Lord sent me. I have brought Agag, the king of Amalek, and I have devoted the Amalekites to destruction. But the people took of the spoil, sheep and oxen, the best things devoted to destruction to sacrifice to the Lord, your God in Gilgal. And Samuel said, has the Lord as great delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices as in obeying the voice of the Lord? Behold, to obey is better than sacrifice. And to listen, than the fat of rams, for rebellion is as the sin of divination and presumption is as iniquity and idolatry because you have rejected the word of the Lord. He has also rejected you from being king. Saul said to Samuel, I have sinned for I have transgressed the commandment of the Lord in your words because I feared the people and obeyed their voice. Now, therefore, please pardon my sin and return with me that I may bow before the Lord. And Samuel said to Saul, I will not return with you, for you have rejected the word of the Lord, and the Lord has rejected you from being king over Israel. As Samuel turned to go away, Saul seized the skirt of his robe and it (coughs) tore. And Samuel said to him, The Lord has torn the kingdom of Israel from you this day and has given it to a neighbor of yours who is better than you. And also the glory of Israel will not lie or have regret, for he is not a man that he should have regret. Then he said, I have sinned. Yet honor me now before the elders of my people and before Israel and return with me that I may bow before the Lord your God. So Samuel turned back after Saul and Saul bowed before the Lord. What we hear is how Saul justifies his actions. And ultimately, how Samuel rejects his excuses and condemns his actions. As a a result, God sends Samuel to appoint a king that would be after God's own heart. He chooses the unlikely figure of David. David, unlike Saul, is found to be shepherding the sheep. And we find later, unlike Saul, he's a good shepherd, protecting his father's sheep. But it's at this time, Saul is overtaken by a tormenting spirit sent by the Lord. The only reprieve he could find is a skilled musician who turns out to be David. Saul is comforted by the worship music, but from time to time in dark fits tries to kill David. I almost made a bad joke about sometimes you turn on praise 106.5 and you just like want to throw a spear. (laughs) Anyway, this begins the story of David, but the story—the main focus remains on Saul. David kills the giant Philistine Goliath. He does so he attempts to wear Saul's armor, but finds it too heavy. It does not allow him to have the freedom of movement. So instead, David kills Goliath through his skill as a shepherd by the Lord's help and kills him by slinging a stone at Goliath's head. So Saul now has David join his army. So David's a shepherd, a musician, a soldier. David's successful and kills many Philistines, so much so that the women begin to sing David's praises as a warrior. This embitters Saul um, and causes him to be envious because the women are singing, Saul kills a 1,000, but David kills 10,000. From this moment on, for several chapters, Saul wants to kill David. At two key moments, David finds a way to preserve the life of Saul by showing him a spear that he'd taken and uh, the hem of his garment. When Saul realizes that David was loyal to him and showed moral integrity toward God's anointed king, Saul comes out of his delusion for a moment and cries, David, my son? He declares David as truly righteous. However, Samuel's leader, Saul's leadership is coming to a bitter end. Near the end of his reign, he becomes so desperate to hear from God because God is no longer speak to him that he wants to consult a witch to conjure up Samuel's, um, dead body so that he can talk to him. He wants to know God's will so badly that he consults a witch. Okay. Of course it goes as badly as we know it's going to go. Uh, he's raised and does tell him God's will, which is, I told you, God's condemning you. Um, For doing such a thing. And Samuel foretells Saul that he and his sons would die um, uh, in the battle soon. His sons are killed. And before the Philistines are able to capture Saul, Saul falls on his own sword in order to avoid his own shame. That's the end. The rise and fall of King Saul. I know that's a long story. I wanted, I'm going to be using a lot of that material. So thank you for forbearance. Uh, Also, I encourage you to go and read the story itself, Um, especially after this lecture. It's very rich. But I want to have four lessons: Um, distrust of God's. So there's four lessons for the religious but not spiritual through the life of King Saul. To be religious but not spiritual means to distrust God's leading. It's the principle of sacrifice over obedience. Um, it is the fear of people over the fear of God, and it's the conflict of a divided heart. So the first lesson for the religious but not spiritual is that we become religious but not spiritual when we distrust the leading of God, despite clear signs. So in each of this section, I'm going to talk about Saul, what we learned through Saul, and then how we might apply that for ourselves. Despite clear signs given to him by God through Samuel, Saul is hesitant, reticent, and unwilling to follow God's leading. Samuel had a banquet in his honor before he even knew Samuel. Samuel then foretold Saul about three events that would occur on his way home, and they did. Yet he said nothing to his uncle about what Samuel had said about Saul being God's anointed king. Then Samuel cast lots before all Israel to reveal who God's anointed is, and it falls on Saul, which should have been a further confirmation of God's power and of God's choosing. Not just a private act, but a public one, and one that is repeated. So it's not just one shining light in the woods. It's like repeated and given specific verbal communication that is fulfilled. But Saul is hiding behind the baggage. Perhaps it's easy To hide in one's baggage and to distrust God. That's my one bad joke. (laughs) (laughs) Nevertheless, Saul will build altars for the Lord and make sacrifices. Interesting. He distrusts God, but he loves making altars. He loves having priests around. He loves making sacrifices. Saul wants God's blessing, but he does not want to follow where God will have him go. Why? Perhaps it's out of anxiety. We see him having anxiety and fear and insecurity. Perhaps he wants to maintain some control over his own life instead of going where God leads him. This is the beginning of being religious but not spiritual, distrusting the voice of God and his leading. It started for Saul this way and it starts for us in this way. When we distrust God, we are not moved by him. Instead, if we remain within God's people without listening and following God, we end up going through the motions, but not having any movement. Our religious life is the motion of a hamster wheel going around and around, but not forward. This is because religious activity is comforting. The ancient words, the beauty and order of religious life, strategic planning, excitement, Now, keep in mind, I'm not speaking against these things per se, but never are we called out of that element. It reminds me of a very famous and often quoted um, uh, statement from Annie Dillard. She says this. Why do people in churches seem like cheerful, brainless tourists on a package tour of the absolute? (laughs) On the whole, I do not find Christians outside of the catacombs sufficiently sensible of conditions. Does anyone have the foggiest idea of what sort of power we so blithely invoke? Or as I suspect, does no one believe a word of it? The churches are children playing on the floor with their chemistry sets, mixing up a batch of TNT to kill a Sunday morning. It is madness to wear lady straw hats and velvet hats to church. We should all be wearing crash helmets. Ushers should issue life preservers and signal flares. They should lash us to our pews. For the sleeping God may wake someday and take offense. Or the waking God may draw us out to where we can never return. Now, of course, um, this can go too far. Some people, you know, Saul was ignoring the signs, but sometimes we can go too far and try to read everything into every sign Uh, as if every sign is the leading of God. One woman came here and it was her pastor and her youth pastor who said that they felt that God told them that she should marry this friend of hers. So she married this man and it was a complete disaster. This young man was gay He had kept it quiet, but married because it gave him some reputation, and it was a disastrous marriage. And she came to Labrieve saying, why did God lie to me? That's a hard thing to untangle. I know a man who felt called to leave his family to be a missionary, and I found out a year later he had a new family. He was starting a new family elsewhere. Sometimes people will look to three green lights, and if these are answered, then God must be answering the desired leading. But remember, I said that God can give you the answers to your prayers, but it not be what is best for you. Um, It's one thing for God to give us the desires of our heart. It's another thing for God to give us over to the desires of our heart. That happens both in the Bible. We need to be very clear. We need discernment of God's leading. God's leading is never formulaic, it's not superstitious. Amy Carmichael, she was a missionary um, from England, went to India, started the Dunover Fellowship. She was rescuing uh, young girls and then later young boys from temple prostitution. Uh, and, they, and she was a huge influence on the life of LaBrie. Amy Carmichael, George Mueller, and Hudson Taylor are probably the three biggest figures for Labrie in terms of uh, wanting to follow God's leading and provision. But Amy Carmichael said in the River Fellowship, they always, instead of praying for God's will, you know, a tagline on the end as a qualifier, I really want this, if it be your will, she said that they always led, we are praying for the will of God. They're praying for God's will, and then they would set their prayers and expectations into it. It's a different posture. And so we need to pray about our hopes, expectations, plans, and have communal discernment. Sometimes we hear clearly, and sometimes we do not. But let me give a brief word about signs. Signs don't change the heart. Signs don't change the heart. Saul received these clear signs, we are told, that even God gave them in a special case, and Saul's heart was not moved a bit. It did not lead him to trust God anymore, even though these were clear signs. It is simply accepted that this is what would be. Um, And remember, so that it was like God was no different than fate, rather than personally providing. Remember that Jesus gave signs to announce his identity, but the people wanted more signs, not him. When the people followed Jesus after he fed the 5,000, do you remember this? He crosses over the water, and then they come around, and they've been looking for him, and they're like, where did you go? And he said, you did not come to me. Uh, uh, Sorry. Jesus said that they did not follow because of what the signs pointed to. They came because their bellies were full of bread. They wanted the blessings, but they didn't want the cost of following. So Jesus soon stopped giving signs, and the only sign he would give them in the end is that he would be crucified and raised on the third day from the grave. And so what we learn from the gospel accounts and from the rest of the Bible is that people want signs, but they don't want what the signs signify. People who are continually looking for signs or green lights are often expressing a different form of religiosity. What we discover is that whether we are in the pews with old creeds and ancient hymns, or we are looking for every sign and every wonder, we can easily be religious but not spiritual, have the form of godliness but not his power. The ritualistic or the hyper charismatic find themselves in the same place if they're looking to the religious form and not looking to God himself. Mm-hmm. Um, Judaism and especially Christianity are unique in saying that while God is transcendent, God is also personal. The problem for Saul was his inability to see the second part that God was personal and personally leading him, personally providing for him. He did not know God's voice because he didn't trust or understand his leading. He was precisely like the king of the other nations. So how do we come to know and trust God's voice. This is my first point. To know his leading, to trust God's leading doesn't necessarily mean that you have to like it. It would be convenient to be called only into those things that we wanted. Consider that the disciples had to learn what it meant to follow Jesus. And when Jesus asked the disciples after he gave an offensive teaching, do you want to leave like everyone else? And Peter says, where would we go? You have the words of eternal life. Peter knew God's voice and therefore his leading. Jesus said to the disciples that they would be friends, intimately aware of God's leading and what God was saying if they did what God commanded. Now, the last time I gave this, there was a long conversation about what does it mean to hear God's voice? Is it inaudible or is it in nature? Um, I just want to be clear that God's voice, he spoke creation into existence and so we can see that all of nature pours forth speech god communicates himself but since the fall we have been removed from hearing clearly we're inexcusable it's evident in our hearts but we need god to speak and god has spoken through his scriptures through many people and giving us his verbal communication that we might know who he is and what his voice is Um, and so we can become more attuned to who, what he says and how he leads as we submit ourselves under the scriptures and obey his voice. And then we start becoming attuned to how he speaks to us, not only uh, through the people of God, but also even in nature. So that's just a little caveat I wanted to make. So it's the same um, <clears throat> With Saul, when Saul does not do what God commands in regard to the Amalekites, God says to Samuel, Saul did not obey my voice. We begin to know God's voice when we look to his commands and are obedient to him. So this is deepened when we spend time in prayer, especially when we do less talking, more listening. Uh, This is how we come to know his voice. You know, there was a a wonderful situation in the, the island church that we lived on. We lived on Bowen Island and um, they were trying to demonstrate what it means to know God's voice. How do we know that it's God? Um, And this does need discernment, but I thought this was a wonderful children's illustration. They asked one of the kids to stand up, this young girl, and they turned her around and four men got up and stood in the back of the church. And she, and they said, tell us when it's your dad's voice. The first guy called her name. I don't remember her name. Let's just say Teresa. Teresa. The second guy said, Teresa. She's like, that's my dad. They're like, well, there's two others. Nope, that's my dad. And it was. She knew. And it was a powerful statement. We know when it's God's voice. Now, we can be, self-deceit is very strong. And so we need to the prayer of others, the discernment, submit ourselves, be humble, to say, am I hearing Right. But, um, but we do have his voice in the scriptures to shape us and to inform us. Okay, so the first sign of being religious but not spiritual is distrust of God's leading. The second one is the principle of sacrifice over obedience. So Samuel makes this well-known pronouncement against Saul. Samuel said, has the Lord great delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices as in obeying the voice of the Lord? Behold, to obey is better than sacrifice, and to listen than the fat of rams. Um, and so he's, <clears throat> Saul is making, um, Samuel's made this pronouncement in light of Saul not following through with God's command to eliminate the Amalekites to fulfill God's curse. Um, <clears throat> when Samuel confronts him, Saul continues to argue that he did fulfill. I did fulfill. I did do it. Um, I did what you asked me to do. And so Saul is constantly rationalizing, rationalizing his obedience to God. Um, <clears throat> but Samuel's like, but do you think he cares about all this other stuff when you're not truly obeying? Um Saul follows God's commands, but only insofar as Saul wants. Saul follows God's commands, but only insofar as he wants, as, as far as it seems reasonable to him. He is willing to go through all the motions. He built several altars. He makes sacrifices. He likes listening to worship music. He hangs out with the priests and calls on them and even goes out to battle because God has asked him to. It seems as we read this story, his story, that he acts as if he goes through all the motions. If he goes through all these motions and doing the bare minimum, then God will be pleased with him. If Saul does his part, God should bless him. It's it's almost a form of prosperity gospel. It's also a form of accommodated gospel. What I mean by that is sometimes we only want to accept in our life before God that which seems reasonable to us. We only want in the scriptures what seems acceptable to us. And then we rationalize as churches and as individuals what we should and should not accept in the Bible, what we should and should not accept from God. And we drain God's word Mm -hmm. and we drain God's power to transform us and to transform the world around us. Uh, so we can see that this principle for Saul is not just a one-time thing. It's not just like he made this one mistake. This is a practice of his that Samuel is calling out that God is condemning him for. So Saul is showing religious zeal in order that he might receive blessing. See how hard I worked for you, Lord. See all that I have done. See how I beat myself and discipline myself for you, God. Consider the times when Saul grew anxious And set up a sacrifice. Or Saul calling the priest to bring the ark to the battlefront. Um, By the way, interestingly, both times the sacrifices become incomplete. He starts the sacrifice and then Samuel shows up. He didn't get the finish. He's about to go out to the battle the second time he gets going and then decides that they don't have enough time. He has this. He has it reveals that he's half-hearted even in his religious custom before God, is that he's doing just as much as he needs to receive the blessing, not anymore. And so you can see that he's putting his hope in the religious form, but only he only, um so much. Saul is, Saul is willing to go through the motions, but not willing to do all that God asks and commands. He's constantly out of step. He's behind God's leading when he's called to go forward, to become king. He is ahead of God's leading when he makes hasty oaths or hasty sacrifices. What we see is that he trusted in his own leading, not in God's, but in God's name. And it is, I mean, it is it is quite easier to, to trust in the sacrifice than obedience. Uh, Francis Schaeffer said I'm more concerned about you making your money justly than that you offer a lot of money to charities Mm
4: -hmm.
0: and it's hard it's easier to make a lot of money and then to give when actually the real command is to say maybe this is not my this is not the life I need to live as a Christian in certain fields and spheres you know we had one student that um, came, she had a severe drinking problem. And at night she would be constantly taken by a tormenting spirit. Um, This was probably caused because of her chronically excessive drinking. And she would put on worship music because she knew demons didn't like it. Um, And she would be able to sleep with praise songs at at the full volume. um after she left i encouraged her i was like maybe you need to quit the vodka and she emailed me about a week later asked how she was doing and she said i've realized vodka is a better friend than god Mm -hmm. um it's sad but she desired the comfort of that praise music to cast out the demons but she didn't want the obedience i mean addictions are a very difficult thing okay Mm -hmm. I'm not trying to undermine that, but it's an. It, it, but I'm talking about the psychology of looking to the worship songs to try to ameliorate the situation rather than um, finding another way out. Um, now, we can be very judgmental of a person, but we easily can fall into the same kind of pattern. We may turn to worship music or sentimental Christian sayings, icons, or theological truths to reassure ourselves that um, to reassure ourselves instead of putting our hands to the plow in obedience it's not that these things are wrong in and of themselves um, but it's the posture that we have toward them um, i mean as a university student i had all the right answers but none of the right behavior <laughs> I thought if I believed 26 out of 26 things, then God was good with me because um, I believed in total depravity, total grace. I was off the hook. Mm-hmm. Um, so I was religious but not spiritual in a very different kind of way. Or consider uh, what we've heard about Ravi Zacharias. Um, you know, um, you know, he was a very prominent apologist. Um and that he um, asked people at these massage parlors for sexual favors. But what's interesting is that the testimony, and now I talked to someone recently who said that they don't think it's true. I don't know. But the point I'm making is that the testimonies that they have is said, which I think has a ring of authenticity, is they said that he cared very much about them. He wanted to know about their lives, their families, about their spiritual warfare, I mean, welfare, and yet at the same time request sexual favor for them. The pressure mounting on him as an international figure, he needed to release pressure and that they could help him in this. So just this cognitive dissonance and saying, I'm doing so much for you, God, I need you to pay up. Can you advance me something? And so the point is, is that I'm not saying that we should be against these religious practices or customs or forms. but the, um, And we should realize that all pastors and priests, they go through dry seasons. They go through uh, the dark night of the soul. Our, lead, our leaders will fail us, even in small ways. They, um, this does not make them necessarily liars, hypocrites, or religious but not spiritual. It becomes religious but not spiritual is when they look to justify themselves by the religious form or by their ministry to rationalize their disobedience. Okay, let me just keep going. The third is the fear of people over the fear of God. So distrust of God's leading, the principle of sacrifice over obedience. Um, And then the third is the fear of people over the fear of God. There are four. So far, we've seen that Saul distrusts God's leading but willing to go through the motions. But now we find what truly motivates him, the fear of people. He's constantly worried about what people think, say, or want. Um, He goes through the religious motions, but we discover it's not for God's approval, but for the people's approval. Um, fake it till you make it kind of thing. Perhaps it's rooted in the fact that he was born tall, handsome, and wealthy. It's funny how people with these inherited gifts can be ensnared by them. Saul, just like the rest of Israel and, all, um, and us too, is, can be worried about appearances. We're worried about what other people think. Um, they wanted a king like the other nations that are constantly worried about their own Statues. He makes a monument for himself. Uh, do you know that the only time that people are mentioned as tall or handsome in the Bible is, um, or at least uh, the the word used to describe Saul is always used of pagan kings, except in the case of Saul. So, so it's a sign that God is giving them a pagan king. <laughs> This worry about appearances become the motivation almost behind all the forms of Saul's leadership. The Israelites begin to scatter when they see the amassing Philistine forces, so Paul makes a hasty, unauthorized sacrifice to keep them together. Saul admitted that he feared the people, and this is why he let them keep the spoils from the battle. Perhaps this is why Saul likes to keep the priest around. You know, I know I know some people who like to have. Uh, i know of people who've walked away from faith but they want to but all their friends are christians and christian leaders it gives them a, an assurance it's a it's, um, an appearance of some kind of righteousness so when one is religious but not spiritual he or she looks to how they appear externally rather than focus on who they are to be internally It may be the person whose house is full of religious objects like icons or ceramic crosses. It may be the person on Zoom who makes sure that they always have an extensive library of theological works behind them. (laughs) It may be the person who can quote the Bible chapter and verse or the person who always has the right answer to every theological question. It may be the person dressed in fineries at church. These things, again, are not wrong in and of themselves, but it is, again, looking to justify oneself by these forms, by these external forms. But this leads us to the question, from whom are they seeking justification? It easily slips into seeking approval from people. And uh, when I was younger, especially, I, um, I thought that if everyone respected me and liked me, that God was good with me. Mm -hmm. And so I hated when anyone was upset with me because then everything was not right. But sometimes God calls us out into a place where everyone's upset with you. Mm
4: -hmm.
0: And you're standing your ground as you should. Samuel, Jonathan, and David are constantly being attacked. Jeremiah, Ezekiel. Um, So it's an easy trap to try to justify our existence by what others think of us. Mm -hmm. And we can even begin to perform morally or religiously in order for people to think we have good standing with God. But really it's a religious performance for others, not for the one um, audience that matters. Um, You know, it's, it's funny, even Samuel is confused by this when he goes out God says okay no I want something after my own heart he goes and he finds uh, uh, this family the sons of Jesse and he sees the eldest son Eliab and he knows surely this is the Lord's anointing um, and he goes through all of the sons they all have really strong traits and he thinks it's got to be this one or it's got to be this one And then the Lord speaks to him and says, do not look on his appearance or on his height or his stature because I have rejected him for the Lord sees not as man sees man looks on the outward appearance, but the Lord looks on the heart. So when we pray, when we tithe, when we do a good work to whom are we really looking? Do you wish to look better, sound better when praying, perhaps not admitting to real struggles? Who do we really look to for the power of God? Okay, the last one, which is also shorter, is the conflict in a divided heart. Religious but not spiritual, distrusting God's leading, sacrifices over obedience, fear of people over the fear of God, and then conflict in a divided heart. Now, Saul is not a simple figure. He's very complex. He's perplexing. Um, It's easy to feel for him. We are just talking just tonight about mixed motivations. Whenever we do something, we have mixed motivations when we're doing it. We're constantly having this division in our heart. We don't have a simple will. And it makes me think of what G.K. Chesterton said of the worst kind of critics. But this applies to Saul is that he has one foot in the church and one foot it's, one foot is in its shadow. One foot in the church or one foot in the kingdom of God and the other foot is in its shadow. When one looks to the approval of people, you can quickly be divided within yourself and we can become easily compromised. This is true whether one is in or outside the church, but the one who wants the approval of both people and of God, one will find themselves divided at the very most existential level. We see this with Saul. (coughs) You hear Saul at pains to make it all right. He rationalizes and makes excuses, perhaps even excuses that he himself believes. Sometimes we can lie to ourselves so consistently that we believe them. What is most telling is when Saul is finally exposed and rejected by God, Saul still wants Samuel to honor him before the people as he bows before God. He's not wanting to be made right with God. He's wanting to be made apparent. He wants the appearance of to be made right before God, before the people. So he's divided. I want want both. This internal conflict only intensifies throughout Saul's life. After this moment, Saul is afflicted by a tormenting spirit sent by God. His only relief comes from worship music played by no other than David himself. And even so, Saul in his dark fits tries to kill David twice. He's trying to kill the very person who's giving him comfort. Later on, when this same David becomes a mighty warrior in Saul's army, Saul becomes envious of David's victories. He does not want the women to sing songs about David. He wants all the approval. So he attempts to murder David. And for several chapters, he's constantly (coughs) trying to kill David, even though David is beyond reproach. And when David (coughs) proves his loyalty, then he cries out to David, oh, you're my son. And then he turns and he wants to kill him. And sometimes we think that this doesn't have inauthenticity, but it's really showing his divided spirit, this inner conflict within himself, that he is very inconsistent. (coughs) Um, By this point, God is no longer communicating to Saul um, Samuel's died and the priests don't hear from him so in his desperation Saul reaches to one of the witches um, <clears throat> um, and of course this is divided <laughs> and then Samuel uh, is, uh, condemns him and says that his sons would die in battle and so even when all is lost he ends up wanting to die on his own sword because he can't stand what my people might think So what began with Saul is divided loyalties, giving him conflicted ideas about who he was, who he was to be, and what he was to do, intensified into despair, um, and the attempt to hold it all together collapsed on him. So it's the conflict within the heart on who it loves and who it serves. Does it obey the voice of God or the voice of the people? The conflict is really trying to serve two masters at our deepest level. Um, it's only when we abide in Christ, we begin to start being reconciled to a simplicity of will. And when we have the simplicity of will, we will have the courage to follow where God is leading, despite the antagonism we may receive. The church needs to hear this. We need to hear this. Um, so many people have come to La as a result of this identity crisis, um, they come wanting to winnow out what's genuine and what's artificial. Who am I really? What really drives me? What really drives me in relation to God? Perhaps life has become very difficult, and they want to know God how God could have let this thing happen. I've given him so much, and yet I feel empty. I've had a successful ministry, except I feel empty. Does God even really exist? In, this, in these crises, when people come, they are in grief. But the question that we need to ask, is this worldly grief or is this godly grief? Um, worldly grief produces despair and death, as it did for Paul I mean Saul, who fell on his own sword. People give up on God because he has failed their expectations of him. Godly grief, on the other hand, produces repentance and renewed life. People realize that they must give up their false notions and expectations of God and come to know him as he truly is. Um, Saul's heart was exposed to a series of crises, but they never produced in Saul a godly grief. Whereas David is different. David is not innocent. He's complicated. He, He steals Bathsheba sleeps with her, kills her um, husband, her beloved husband. Um, And he's confronted, their child dies, and he is given to godly grief. He still suffers the consequences, but he turns to repentance and renewal of life. This is the difference between Saul and David. So when a crisis reveals our true loyalties, it's not the end, but an opportunity to turn back to the living God and know him in new ways. Here's my concluding reflection. So how are we to understand religious but not spiritual and turn toward a genuine or a true spirituality? Um, When we fall into the patterns of being religious but not spiritual, as we all will, as we all do, We are ultimately looking to external forms to guarantee internal reality, a transformed, renewed life. Um, We may look to religious forms or to others to justify our existence before God. If I have done all these things on behalf of God, perhaps even having a successful ministry where many people have been saved and helped, I believe I am justified before God. If many people have expressed gratitude and praise for what I've done, I feel that I have done all that has been asked. I think about Kanye West, he says he knows he's going to heaven. And they ask, how do you know you're going to heaven? He goes, because I wrote Jesus Walks. You know, it's just really good song, but he justified his whole existence on writing one really good worship song. But this is only a form of godliness by denying its power. The response to being, to religious but not spiritual is not to be spiritual but not religious. This attitude is to reject, in theory, religious forms for a spiritual connectedness. Who needs a cathedral with an entourage of priests when I can simply walk in the forest, attuning myself to God's nature? The problem is that this is this is only not religious in theory. In organized religious forms, they are still... Um, sorry. Uh, in such a practice, a person does not avoid religious forms. It may not be prevalent organized religious forms, but there are still forms, but simply done individualistically, perhaps meditating on the sounds of water, lapping on a shore, perhaps touring Buddhist temples or touching the Wailing Wall. Perhaps it's the newest form or the newest book um, or a newest spiritual practice of a, an old Christian tradition that has been rediscovered. Um, The spiritual but not religious simply becomes religious but not spiritual. And both God is impersonal and the focus is on the external form to produce an internal transformation. So my suggestion is that we be religious but spiritual. We should be religious but spiritual. The problem is not the forms. The problem is our relation to the forms. In the other two ways, the forms are looked to having power godly power to transform us. But in true spirituality, the forms only point to a deeper reality, but cannot produce it in itself. For instance, Christian baptism does not wash us clean of our sins, but points us to God having washed us clean through Jesus Christ. Communion doesn't forgive us, but points to that power in what Jesus has done for us in his death and resurrection. It is the same with forms, whether it's serving the poor Showing hospitality, giving generously, acquiring biblical knowledge, giving thanks before one eats. Uh, These forms can be good, and they are good, but they point to a prior and deeper biblical reality, a prior and deeper spiritual reality, to what God has already done for us and in us by his spirit. It is the power of godliness to transform our hearts and to transform society. Um, True spirituality does not look to external forms to produce or guarantee a transformed internal life. Instead, true spirituality is a transformed internal life that produces good forms. Let me put that in another way. this is the most important point. So this is where you need to focus. Okay. We're coming in. The plane is landing. Okay. True spirituality is a transformed internal life that produces forms. Another way I like to put it is good works don't accomplish grace, but grace accomplishes good works. Or to put it in a more biblical way, God transforms our hearts to produce the fruit of his spirit. We can put the fruit of the spirit on a poster and look at it every day and it have no impact. Mm -hmm. We cannot produce this in our own power. It happens simply. We raise our empty hands and first trust what God has declared over us in Christ. We no longer call God a liar. And because of what God has accomplished through Jesus Christ on the cross and in the resurrection, as we look to God with empty hands in faith, God is faithful to transform us from the inside out. And this is just the beginning. Once God begins this work, it's not as if we are now set to pay off the debt that Jesus paid. Instead, it is continually looking to God's voice and God's leading that will produce in us and through us his life out into the world. Okay, so this is where I end. Uh, This is a time for us to have discussion. You can bring up anything that I've talked about or haven't talked about. Yes.
2: I have a
3: clarification question. Great. So when you said um, we attune to God as we submit to scripture, as you're talking about how we
0: uh, hear his voice, hear his voice. Mm-hmm.
3: what do you mean by submit to scripture?
0: What I mean is that uh, that's a really good question. Because uh, I was talking about that in the context of it being God's voice. Um, and so the first thing is Let's not tether it to our emotions. Like, let's say that we're having warm feelings. And therefore, I know it's God's voice. <clears throat> what I mean, first and foremost, is that we need to depend on the scriptures to know if this is of God's character and if this is his voice. So we need to submit to his verbal communication as given to us through history. The second is I also tied it to obedience, And so we need to obey what God has commanded us to do in scripture uh, so that it removes the clouds or some of the self-deception in humbling ourselves before God and saying, okay, I need to submit to God's voice as given to us through the scriptures so that I might understand him more fully. Rather than, as I was saying, that sometimes we have an accommodated gospel that we only want to do as much as seems reasonable to us. So we want to have our Christian life, um, but we want to do, we want to live out only those things that seem reasonable to us. So in scripture, we say, well, this doesn't seem reasonable, or this is archaic, or this is probably not true, or this is first century kind of mindset, and we don't submit to the eternal word of God. Then I believe that we start hearing, uh, you know, we almost make Jesus an idol rather than follow him as he is we look for him in his blessings rather than his commands so submitting to scripture means corresponding his voice and obedience to the full verbal communication yeah
1: isn't it better to say submitting to god by by looking through jesus i mean because there's conflicting messages when you try and justify things through the scriptures but Mm -hmm. jesus as the embodiment of The nature of God. If you like God incarnate, we can we look to Jesus, and rather than just saying you know look to the scriptures to find find guidance, I think we have to look at Jesus first, and then understand the scriptures through the lens of Jesus. Because through the scriptures, I mean, you you well, you know,
0: there's the whole challenge is trying to figure out who is Jesus. How do we know who Jesus is? And Jesus, on his own lips, confirms. Uh, the verbal communication of God again and again. He, he quotes Moses. He's, oh, he's put, quoting quotes the Old Testament all the time. All the time and, and the Psalms. And so we can have assurance that he's looking to the Bible as trying to express his own identity. So when Jesus mm-hmm. talks about his identity, he doesn't just talk about what he's saying. It's always in reference. It's always tethered to what has already been given. And the second thing is that when we look, when we look to the scriptures, yes, we need to look to Jesus. We don't want to be, um, you know, people call it bibliolatry, Like we take the Bible and we want to bash people over the head and that we in that we start believing more in our, you know, in the Bible than we do in Jesus. But it's more responsible to say, actually, um, Jesus and the Bible are so intricately connected that we know Jesus through the scriptures and the scriptures point us to Jesus. But if we divide them too easily and saying, you know, let's not just get confused by the Bible and let's just focus on Jesus. It's very easy for us to slip into a Jesus that we want to believe in rather than the one that is offensive to us.
1: But I, I, I absolutely agree that with, with the old chapter, because, uh, just about everything that Jesus talks about, you can go back into the old Testament. Mm-hmm. And he is, you know, in some cases quoting it or using it uh, in various ways. Mm-hmm. But on the other hand, you have, you have contradictions, like, like you talked about the Immaculites, you know, and, but then you have Jesus, it, you know, how, how do you deal with the Roman? Do you love your enemy? Turn the other cheek. It, so it's completely the opposite. So which message you get, do you take, for example, out of that? Yeah.
0: Well, I mean, it, it would be an easy, it would be kind of an, an easy uh, solution just to say, well, Let's just focus on love and not any judgment. But Jesus, the word "hell" shows up on Jesus' lips more than anyone else. Uh, he also says at a point, he says, "I brought a, um, I brought a sword, divide families against each other."
1: And so, well, yeah, but that was his message. It's, it's just you know, like we've just seen, uh, like the whole, you know. Uh, 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 COVID thing, you know, how that mm-hmm. divided people. His message was dividing people because there was the ones that wanted to have a revolution, a violent revolution. And, you know, and that was what they were looking for him to do was mm-hmm. to lead a violent revolution. But then Jesus is saying, no, it's, it's, it's not about that at all. It's about having a nonviolent revolution. Uh,
0: but it's, it's but um, Jesus was correcting their misinterpretation of the scriptures, but he wasn't doing away with the scriptures. No, I, I don't. I'm not saying so, that at all. Um and so when we, so when we see the judgment of God falling on the Amalekites for what they've done, or the Canaanites for that matter, we can see that that the because um, when we see Jesus, He has come because it is at that moment in God's history, in God's salvation that he is offering people to escape the judgment that he shows that he will bring on the people that reject him and that reject his people. And so, so we, so Jesus is offering that salvation, but Jesus also speaks about how he will come and judge and separate between the goats and the sheep. Uh, He talks about judgment. He talks about the parable of the wedding banquet where he says the person comes in And the host says, how did you get in here? How did you get wedding clothes on? Toss them out where there'll be gnashing of teeth. Now, I'm not trying to promote like the bad Jesus, but I'm saying that we need to let all scriptures communicate rather than just to take the parts that we find, that the ones that we like best. Uh, And we have to really wrestle what is happening. Why why does, Jesus doesn't say, you know, now, he did say, okay, the Romans are trying to use military power, but we have to try to think about, okay, then why was there these, this military power in the Old Testament? Uh, well, it's not just, well, that, that's that been, you know, that's been done away with. God changed his mind, you know, especially when Jesus does not talk about the Old Testament. He says that none of it will be removed, not one jot or tittle. And so, and he points to himself in the law the prophets and the psalms
1: but he said he also said that it's, it's through love uh, there's a basis for all the law and the prophets so i, I would say you know like well, we should start that, with jesus but to understand jesus you need the old testament right you know but what we but then, will
0: have is we'll have a definition of love that is unrooted from the scripture it will be a cultural form of love and and Because the idea that we often do is we take this idea of love, we think of what is ideal human love, and then we increase it to the nth degree and say, okay, that's divine love. But that's not how revelation works. Revelation works is that God communicates to us what love means. Mm -hmm. Um, And it's never without his holiness. It's never without his purity. It's never without his judgment. And so we have to hold this tension together. And so we have to deal with what God reveals to us rather than trying to work up and then judge the scriptures based on what we think is
1: what God reveals us reveals to us through Jesus
0: yeah but but Jesus can't be separated from the old testament as you said yourself yeah, yeah it does. um and Jesus himself continually talks about judgment uh, and so it, it just becomes tricky we can't it's you know and we see even as i was mentioning this these people who come to Jesus you know, it's like, why does he say, eh, "You're not coming"? And this is in John six. He's like, "You're coming because, uh, not because of the miracles, uh, but because I gave you food." And and they're like, "Well," and they start arguing with him. And if you look at that carefully, that story, he's actually being almost as cryptic as possible and he makes it worse and worse and worse and worse rather than making it easier and easier for them to understand or easier for them to follow and by the end most of them have left
1: they never did follow until they're offended by his teaching even in acts one you know we can't they didn't get they still think that he is going to lead them you know against the uh, militarily against the romans you know empowered by god
0: right but see you know like So, like, in in light of this talk, like, if we take just the ideal version, this idealized version of, okay, okay, Jesus is about love, um, it it doesn't become as powerful or as radical as the the full scriptures announce. Um, And the church has abdicated again and again and again to cultural norms because of the auspice of love. Rather than saying, actually, we need to look at the whole council of God rather because if we if we try to separate it from the whole council, then people will start recalibrating to what the people want. To what culture demands for. Um, And and then, I mean, I talked to a priest recently and he said, I'm so tired. Does the church not stand for anything?
4: Uh,
0: And so. We have so it's it seems like a slight interpretation move to like say, well, we just let's just focus on Jesus and not all these like complications. Mm -hmm. But the power of Jesus' message has to be held in all his complications. And then we wrestle with what God has given us, not with what you know what we think is most reasonable and sift and say, okay.
1: Well, I think for me it's, it's simply I believe in the God of perfect justice. And, and and ultimately, there will be perfect justice. But I don't know what that looks like. No, I sort of leave that as God's business, well above my pay grade. Right.
0: <laughs> but we are given that as believers, as disciples, we receive it and we're responsible for how we handle it. And so we need to, you know, point to the cross, not just as an example of love, but also as an example of justice. Mm-hmm. And if we do that, then we're in a whole mess because we have to think, okay, where does that judgment come from?
1: We see justice in the resurrection.
0: And we see it in the resurrection. But that, that it's important that we see the cross as, as an act of God's holiness, as well as God's love. It's not just God's love for a hurting world. It's God's justification for a disobedient people.
1: <coughs> yeah, I'm sort of on board. <laughs> okay.
0: Yeah. okay, we can come back to that. In yeah. a minute. It's a very important point. Yes,
3: this is like kind of random, but why yeah. did he give Saul that tormenting spirit? Do you think?
0: Why did God give him that tormenting spirit? Yeah. You know, uh, I don't know. That's my first answer. Uh, that's an honest answer. As I've worked it out, thought about that. Um, I believe that it that God is giving him over to himself. Uh and and how that works in the supernatural realm. I'm not sure. Um, I don't think it's just like a natural thing. It's like, Oh, he's depressed. Mm
4: -hmm.
0: You know, he's not listening to God. So now he's depressed because I do believe that there is a supernatural element, there's spiritual warfare at work. Mm -hmm. Um, and I believe that God is over that in his sovereignty. And so, um, what does that mean that he's been given this tormenting spirit? I like to think of it as, um, That he has that conviction, but he refuses to repent. And so he's in torment. Um, He's weighed down because he doesn't know if he just turns. If he just turns to God, God will give him mercy and show him. um, Yeah, take the kingdom away from me. Take the kingship away from me, but restore me to yourself. But that he just can't let go. And so I think that... um, in how God has worked with him is that that he's tormented. What do you think? That
2: makes sense to
0: me. <laughs> oh, good. I'm just going to go with it now.
3: <laughs>
4: <laughs> yeah. There we go.
3: Yeah. Um. Great talk. I appreciate it. Brand new to me, as far as I was concerned. <laughs> <laughs> I heard it two years ago. Um. I really like uh, what you were saying about. Saul building altars hmm. that he was that's one thing he could do and he did it. And just how that in our Christian circles, it makes me think that we can get into our little niche or whatever of what we do well and we just keep doing it. Or for hmm. in a ministry, we just keep on going and and because that's what we do well and that's what we do. And maybe God has something more. Or maybe we're missing some, but we, we just head down to what we do well. So the idea of listening more to God mm-hmm. and fully mm-hmm. with God and not just keeping on and with inertia into what we you know. And um yeah, with with the the whole armor thing when David tried it on and then got rid of it sort of feels like the trappings of religion yeah. in a sense how this is what we usually do and if he had kept it on he would not have actually been able to operate with what God was calling him to do mm-hmm. and so and yet I like how he balanced we don't get rid of religious form altogether but we keep it mm. and yeah, right and so that was good for me to hear
0: Yeah, and thanks for applying that, um, not just, but as churches. And I often, when I see people who want to church plant, they always think, okay, this is the strategy to church plant. Uh, And there's something wise about saying, okay, there are people who have gone in front of you. But uh, we can think church must look just like this. And we replicate, replicate, replicate. Um, God has given us forms in the New Testament of leadership. discernment, prayer, preaching of the word, these things, but there's actually a lot of flexibility that we often don't allow ourselves to have because we're trying to play it safe. And maybe Mm -hmm. God is calling us to be different in a new society. I mean, the the culture today is so different from 50 years ago. Mm -hmm. Um, And in fact, I don't think people have a problem with religion. People think that people, there's religious oppression. I think there's religiosity all around us. But I think what they really don't want is the power of God at work, that the light is shining, um, with even with a few people who are really committed to the faithfulness of God. I think that's what people are trying to s- squeeze out, but you can have all the, you can have all the, um, robes and crosses and then smoke. And it's kind of like, Oh, that's interesting.
4: Mm-hmm.
0: You know? Uh, but when it gets to, when it touches, <laughs> when it touches on, you know, um, mm-hmm. what God is calling us to be in him, it gets very mm-hmm. nervous. But, you know, Labrie has this tension. We talk about, it's like, well, uh, one person, Sue um, uh, Schaefer-Macaulay, that's uh, Francesa just daughter, she said, you know, what? who knows what Labrie will be in 50 years? Maybe we'll just be uh, doing hospice care. And some people in Labrie were like, horrified. Not because they're against hospice care, but it's like, well, I mean, shouldn't we celebrate all that's been given to us? But I really liked her flexibility. And I think Mm. that her parents really had that flexibility. They didn't have a plan. Mm. And LaBrie is also a little bit unwieldy because it doesn't have a five-year plan.
4: Mm.
0: Uh, And so we always want to respond of what's happening, which can make us look like we're on our backs. Uh, Mm. We're on our back heels, but actually we're saying, let's not create a problem until the problem comes. And then we respond in God's power and ask for God's providence and uh, provision. Uh, and so because of that, we started having terms. We started having student fees. We started calling them students. They didn't even study uh, saying, OK, well, maybe we should have um, uh, families are being hurt. So we should have the students sleep close to families, but not necessarily in the same like the same house, which is not the same house, but the same like accommodations uh and so we have responded and culture has shifted okay. but it's always that important impulse to say but it can look different
3: mm-hmm. well, it can look said, different well amy Carmichael like lord if it be your will or we want to pray in your will the start starting point mm-hmm. and then this is what we want in submission to you
0: yeah yeah. And we can have freedom. And, you know, it's, uh, it's in, when we came to the island, I, I met with uh, about 10 pastors. I bought them lunch. I just said, and they're like, what do you want? Nothing. I just want you to know that I exist.
4: Mm-hmm.
0: Um, but when it came to a point of saying, I said, hey, I, I want to meet with some business people. You're white-collar workers, and how might they think about faith and work? And I know that there's a lot. I know that it doesn't show up in the sermons. And so I just want to think about the ethics of work and the the kind of conflicts that can happen. And how can we think Christianly about work? And I had met with these pastors over a year and a half. They all liked me, respected me. Only one pastor sent me two names. No one else did. And one person wrote and said, I'm going to give you one name, but I want you to report to me. On all that is being said and taught and how they're growing. <laughs> and I was just like, this is weird. Surveillance. It was surveillance. It was control. Like they wanted it to have the control over the form. And I told them, I and I emailed them, I'm not sheep stealing. LaBrie is not a church. I just want to feed your people and make them better parishioners, better conquered better Christians in the you know, like more faithfully following Jesus in their work. And there was so much, and so it ended up, the two people that came, one pastor who really understood this impulse, it actually spread white word of mouth. Um, and Labrie is all word of mouth. Um, and so it keeps, it just, it made me realize how much religiosity and how we want to hold to church forms in how we plant and how we strategize and what kind of programs. Mm -hmm. I mean, I go to elder, um, I've gone to elders meetings and it feels more like business planning and Mm -hmm. evangelical strategies Mm
4: -hmm.
0: rather than saying, okay, well, where are our needs and how can God equip us and how can we equip the people in our church just to be wherever they are? Mm -hmm. Uh, And so yeah, this religious form is heavy, very heavy, like Saul's armor. And we're trying to move in Saul's armor, but it's not freeing. And there's Goliaths around us. We need to have the freedom of movement to see God's power. It doesn't mean we should despise the heritage or these forms, but we should know that they are secondary to the things that God has called us and given us in Scripture. Julia?
2: Um yeah i appreciate the comparing of david and saul and just that their posture and um just looking at saul like he seems to be there's not as much on him i I grant that but he seems to be much more self-centered self-conscious self-focused maybe self-loving individual and david seems to be the one that's like loving like, he's a, he a king that loves his people, and he loves God. And you can see a, such a strong contrast in that. And so I find that helpful to think about. Um, yeah, just their posture in, in how they approached being king. And you can just see the, the difference yeah. in self-love versus self, like other love of others and and that that verse of Paul's came to mind that they like, if you you know, in First Corinthians, just um, <clears throat> you don't have love. Um, and so that seemed pretty evident in hmm. Saul's life. Um, and I also appreciated looking at the obedience and sacrifice, like and how do I evaluate? and I, I always that's something that's good to come back to again and again, like where? Where am I focusing more on sacrifice than on op- Like I can see different areas in my
0: own life. Mm-hmm. So and yeah, I think you were saying that. It made me think about how, you know, Saul's friends are always the religious priests um, and trying to like capture King Agag and like use him. And David always has this ragtag group of people. And whenever someone comes up, they're like from a different country. And there's, I I can't remember if it's at the end of 2 Samuel, but I think it is, but he's on the run and he has like 200 men around him and they're all the misfits. You know, the island of broken toys, whatever it is. Um, But how different that is from Saul. You know, and that David really feels that if God is for us, who can be against us? He he seems to have (laughs) that the whole time. And even when he Absalom tries to like, uh go after him, he leaves the castle and everything um and and it's almost like a penitential thing that he does where Saul is you know defending his rights the whole time but yeah, thank you yeah and it's easy to do I mean I uh it's easy to to look to the form, you know, even at Labrie, you know like we love Labrie. I love the work of Labrie, but I'm constantly praying against the temptation of the form, you know, I mean, not, I appreciate the form, but just leaning on the form rather than actually leaning in to the person who walked through that door and saying, adjust, be open rather than, you know, um, and the form is there to support, but it's not supposed to control. So, it's the same temptation
1: here. I really liked what you said about the the, the your definition of religious and, and not spiritual, mm. and I I guess it really made me think that that sort of applies to all Christians. It's just a matter of degree, mm. you know. Because I think largely, I often do the prayers of the people in church, mm. and yeah, you know, and when I, I I have them all prepared, you know, ahead of time and everything, and I think. Now, who am I talking to here? Am I talking to try and to have people come say, oh, really good job with the prayers? You know, am I talking to God? Mm-hmm. Am I trying to teach something? You know, it's, it's very conflicting. Like You can hear anytime, you know, you get a group prayer going. You know, who, who's everybody talking to, you know? That's right. <laughs> you know, so, you know, so we're looking for that, you know, that approval and everything else. You know, ostensibly we're talking... You know specifically to God but I I I find it very conflicting within myself I, I see the conflict within myself mm, you know
0: that's really good I appreciate that honesty and I think that we all share that yeah um, uh, you know if you if you' are in if you're in leadership in any way in a church it's so easy to look at yourself sure. serving rather than simply serving yeah. before God yeah and, and I hear, I hear sometimes we gather in prayer and sometimes I just hear someone's prayer and I'm just, I used to just be like, okay, check out, but some, but now I, I get angry. Mm. I'm like, just, you know, like, I don't care if you're have any of the right words. If you're stuttering, you're stumbling, you're just, I'm okay with that, mm. but don't start falling into the mantras or trying to impress anybody here. yeah uh, But you know, I Would judge you myself some... as soon as I do that because you know, and so I try to make it a practice. Like sometimes when people ask me to pray, I'm like, nope, yeah. uh, I'm not going to just serve that function. You know, yeah. actually, I'm going to tell you a naughty story. Not that naughty, but um, <laughs> if you know me, not that naughty. It's uh, <laughs> I was at a uh, Christmas event and uh, a family member asked me to pray, and there's only like three Christians out of like twenty something. And I was being asked to pray because I'm a pastor and this person is kind of one foot in the church and the other in its shadow. And I had a, I had, had a glass of wine before this. And, uh, and they Let's said, Will you pray? pray for the meal. And I said, to which God <laughs> 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 I was being very, yeah. and then I was like, okay, I will. I will. Um, but, uh, cause I just don't want to just, do the religious service.
1: Yeah. But I mean it's it's just human. Would you rather have someone come and tell you boy great talk tonight Clark mm-hmm. or somebody say oh
0: you're you're, you're full of it. <laughs> Actually I prefer yeah. the full of it because I'm like oh there you well, go. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> you know my least favorite sermon is or walking out is someone saying good job good job yeah. good job. I'd rather someone say I liked everything but yeah. You know, it's like, or, oh, what you said there was good. This is how I apply it. I like that. I just want to be engaged. And so mm. I love the Q&A here. Mm. Um, I mean, I don't want to be told, like, uh, I don't mind if I do a bad job. I just don't want to do a very boring job. <laughs>
1: yeah. But you want to feel good about it, about the job you
0: did. Yeah but, I, yeah, but I still try to be careful with all that, but mm. it's it's good.
1: But but isn't there a role? I mean, this is on the kind of religious end of the spectrum, I suppose. I find that some prayers that are you know in the prayer book, let's say, mm. um, are much more meaningful for me to recite mm. than any kind of extempore yeah. you know, prayer uh, because they have the, the you know the depth of history the depth of prior thought the depth of um christian experience that goes way beyond mine um,
0: yeah so no thank you and, uh, and this came up last time i talked about the 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 book of common prayer and also church calendars i think churches should all celebrate the church the 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 church calendar yeah Uh, I think it's very important for formation. And it's not that I don't think that religious forms don't have any formation. Uh, I like what C.S. Lewis says. We're more animal than we like to think. So like bending the knees when you pray is probably important because your body needs to have that humility. Um, uh, And so I think the Book of Common Prayer is really wonderful. It reminds you of the history, as you said. It also, reminds you of the universal church yeah. um, and depth of meaning. And so, when we only kind of just pray, whatever is spontaneous, can become very superficial and repetitive.
4: Yeah.
0: Uh, and so, so I agree. Yeah. So I'm not against the religious form. It's like I said. It's when we justify ourselves or think that that is the power, but it it should at least nudge us to remind us of the signified. Right. And so I agree with you.
2: Yeah, yeah,
5: yeah. Mm-hmm. Ask Something as well, Clark. of course. Um, yeah, thank you for all that. Um, you mentioned, and like it's it's very true that in each of us there's that division of religious and spiritual. Like even the most committed Christians are going to have a divided part at various times. And mm-hmm. I, I, yeah, I see that disturbingly in myself and it's disturbing me more now than it ever has and you mentioned like one litmus test if you want to put it like that is um worldly grief versus godly grief Mm. can you talk more about how you distinguish the two, and how do you know like whether your disturbance of what you see in yourself is um or, or, the the disquiet and the despair that you see with that pull, like that tension, um, mm. is yeah, is got a little bit slowly.
0: Yeah, it's a very good question. Yeah, and grief. I think that when Paul's talking about that in Second Corinthians chapter seven, um, it. I think that the the grief he's talking about it, the worldly grief and the godly grief can have the same source. Like maybe it's something that we've done, you know what David has done with Bathsheba. It brought him grief. Now the significance is it, will it become godly grief or will it become worldly grief? Is it a grief where, um, because Job is right to question God. Um, He's right to be angry, but he's not at liberty to belittle God or, um, or to, um, to diminish his glory and to stick the middle finger up at God um, and to justify ourselves and to not allow God to justify himself. Um, and so we look for, and so I think godly grief is looking for God to justify and to work through us. And worldly grief is for us looking for self-justification without God.
4: Mm-hmm.
0: Um, and we'll die on that
4: mm-hmm. hill,
0: you know, yeah. and I see people who come into Labrie and sometimes they're so angry at God. And like that that young woman, that I feel so sad that she married that guy because of two people she trusted. Horrible situation. Um, but she would not let go that it could be that they misinterpreted and that it was bad advice. It was a mistake. And that, and so instead of thinking, how do I need to live in this? Should should we get a Should we live out this relate? What should we do? It was never that. It was, I'm angry at God, and I want to prove it. Um, I see so many people who, there was one guy that came. He prayed for a truck. And he entered into this raffle for a truck. And God did not give him that truck. And I remember him saying, I and hate God blah blah just going off oh, he's never done anything for me blah, blah 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 and then it was about a week and a half later we're sitting at the table he's like and he was very likable because you never had to guess what he was thinking <laughs> um and so if he loved something he loved it if he hated it, and so he didn't have a filter which was a problem but uh But it also meant that you could have a very honest conversation. But I remember he just like, man, if I hadn't drank all that beer and spent it on women, I'd have a house and a truck by now. (laughs) He didn't talk like that, by the way. (laughs) I just got back into Tennessee there. (laughs) But I went like this. I was like, "Uh, what did you say? You'd have a truck by now? do you have a truck? I was like, maybe God wanted you to drink, stop drinking beer so that you could have that truck rather than waiting to win in a raffle. And he was just like paused. He had to think about it, you know, but it's it was that motion of just like standing and being angry. God's not delivering. And I've done it all. Rather than saying, God, I've tried to do my best. I'm mixed in my motivations. I'm a sinner. And yet I follow you. I think when David says, my heart is blameless, when Paul says I'm blameless, I don't think that they think they're sinless. Rather, they're saying, in spite of my sin, I keep on the path and following and following and following. And I don't know why these hard things are happening. How am I to understand this? And I think that's godly grief. Um, And for Paul, godly grief is really to say, I know that you feel sorrow for me. But let it be at work in you so that it might be a renewal from God and that our relationship might be tighter for it. So it's just a different way of looking at a crisis, Um, being humbled and renewed and looking and asking God, why? Where are you? How long? Um, And the other one is saying, no. Uh, Bertrand Russell said, someone said, what are you going to do when you stand before uh, when God asks you what have you done with your life? And he says, well, he has to answer my questions first or something like that. Mm-hmm. <laughs> uh, it's just this attitude of like, I'm going to kick down the door and say, God, you know, you're not justified.
5: Mm-hmm. So. And really like they're too quite, like they're so starkly different in their attitude toward mm-hmm. self and God. So mm-hmm. it's helpful to, yeah, like you, you know, it's very different someone, um, you know, intentionally walking away from God or rebelling in some way um, than someone who realises that um, they mess up sometimes, um, but they're, they're relying on God's grace. And hmm. it's not like the attitude of, yeah, like fix that God. Yeah. Like humility in their own shortcomings but then God's goodness as well.
0: Yeah. And, you know, I, I want to add to that is that, you know, this, this, power of worldly grief is almost anger and it's almost power but paul says it ends in death and despair that's what we see with paul i mean saul um of the son of kish it's it's this this grief of wanting to clench your fists but then in the end you're just shadow boxing
4: you know
0: uh godly grief seems so hard to submit yourself and bend low when things are so hard and you want to understand what God is doing mm-hmm. and why, and who am I? Who will rescue from me from this body of death, like like mm-hmm. that? But that humility and softness actually gives people courage and strength um, in the next in the next step, and they become more and more solid in who they are, um, while the other one leads to death and despair. Yes, Hannah.
3: I have a question from Dan online. Okay when worship services become repetitious what is the path toward more genuine spirituality are there particular steps towards such a spirituality
0: yeah when the church and the practice of church becomes repetitious are there ways um well you know it's i mean that's a burden that i carry <laughs> and it's like oh this song you know, and sometimes you start critiquing the song or you start thinking about how you're singing or, you know, or how the person beside you is singing for better or for worse. And, you know, it's so easy to, for it to become banal. You know? um, Yet yeah, I find that when I come to church, even if it's repetitious and my heart is humbled before God. I find that I need that renewed that i need to hear it again
4: Mm
0: -hmm. i need to hear it again and so sometimes it's my posture of walking into church Mm -hmm. on whether i'm hearing from god or not but i understand that when it becomes repetitious that's why i I do like the book of common prayer and the church calendar is that it repeats and yet it also moves and it comes back Mm -hmm. um but I, i think it's the posture of our heart when we walk into a service, does anyone else have anything to add to that? Yeah, yeah,
3: I struggle with that sometimes. And I can get if I focus too much on I can get to the point where I don't want to go to church, mm-hmm. and yet it's like, okay, Lord, I know I need, I need to be in church. And I had a revelation a little while ago just that, the, like, if I see all the faults and the failures and the shortcomings. God, how much more does God know
4: mm.
3: our frailties and weaknesses, and yet He loves, He endures,
4: mm.
3: He puts up with us, mm-hmm. He works with us. So, so it just it just humbles me that that puts me. It's like okay, mm. God, if you're in this, if this is what you're working with,
4: mm-hmm.
3: who am I to say, oh? yeah Yeah. and so it it just brings me down
0: yeah i mean we have in the scriptures god's like do i need blood of bulls or or blood of animals uh do you think i need all this that i'm really hungry yeah do you think i need a house to live in um your prayers are so annoying i don't even listen to them anymore and when you call out in your time of distress, I will not listen. Mm-hmm. And so I think it's right to be really angry at it. I think there's a righteous anger of saying, "Is it? Are we just going through the motions without movement?" Yeah. Um, but God delights in a contrite heart. God delights in hearing the truth proclaimed.
4: Mm-hmm.
0: Uh, God delights when someone turns and becomes a believer. And so, uh, yeah, I do think that we need to be very sensitive as people in the church, as worship leaders, as pastors, Mm -hmm. um, but even as congregants, Mm -hmm. parishioners, that we need to humble ourselves and say, okay, at least my heart can be contrite. Mm -hmm. And and this is what God, God will look upon, this.
3: And as long as we're seeing some good, happening some some mm-hmm. like maybe the worship team's not that great or the songs are not right in my type but the preaching is really good so there's something happening you know i can keep
0: yeah for me the most important thing in a church is this sounds strange it's not i do think preaching of the word is very important but for me is there spiritual renewal in the people
4: mm-hmm.
0: is there continual repentance and renewal yeah I don't care how boring, how stodgy, but you start seeing the fruit of God's Spirit at work in the people yeah. by how they care um, for the poor or for one another, for the weak. Um, and if that's there, then that means that the Word is being preached. Right. Um, and hopefully, the music is good. You know. also
2: moving beyond superficiality, like mm-hmm. I think it's supposed to be a real family, and I think hospital, like eating together and hospitality, like bringing some of those things in, if it's just superficial, then it will just be (laughs) painful, you know, but if there's real fellowship outside of that service, and there's hospitality, and there's eating together, even, you know, it doesn't have to be all the time, but I think,
0: yeah to get beyond the superficiality and and it's risky to do that because we like to have the forms to kind of to keep it stable and you know it's much more efficient i think i mean if christians are bored with themselves what power is there to change people's lives and culture i love a new believer like they come in it's like the most boring service and they're just like crying because they're hearing the power of the gospel um, and so, uh, we should never diminish that, but we should always be open for that new word.
4: Um, the,
0: you know, not, not like a brand new word, but like the word reapplied again, newly on our hearts. Uh, I just don't think that the church is going to have much power if we just keep, keep it safe.
1: Yeah. I think we have to be careful too, like differentiate, you know, we go to church, you know, it's not about how can, how can the ch- church serve me, or how can God Mm -hmm. serve me through the church, you know, by having really good praise music or whatever, you know, but having the attitude of, okay, what can I do within this church for God, you know, right, so it's about about serving rather than being served.
0: Yeah, having that posture of humility and coming in and saying, okay, I want to contribute, Mm -hmm. and once we contribute, we actually usually start receiving, you know, it can be overused, but... Mm -hmm. If you don't contribute ever. Okay. I think it's time. Uh, Thanks everybody. Uh, Y'all can continue to hang out, chat with me if you want want, and uh, have a good night.